Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with intellectual property attorney Mark Mistel. Hello all. After a bit of a hiatus, we are back, and we're so excited to be back, and we're back with a great program. We have attorney Mark Mistel joining us, a partner with Gottlieb, Rackman, and Reisman, where he practices intellectual property law. In this episode, he speaks with us about intellectual property law, laying out the different areas, and then we get into a really good discussion about the intersection between IP and social media law, talking about some real-life problems today. And at the end of the discussion, he gives some great advice for those of you who want to practice in the area. It's a really cool discussion, I'm sure one you will really enjoy. Here's my discussion with Mark Mistel. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled. And I know that my students are thrilled. Or all, you know, all students who listen to a lot of fact are thrilled because IP seems to be the hot topic that um, students entering law school want to focus on. And I don't think that students really understand what being an IP attorney is. So I know we want to talk a little bit about some substance, but can you give us a brief overview of what an IP attorney is? Sure. First, thank you for, for inviting me and thank you for, for having me. It's Pleasure to be here and speak with you. Um, so an IP attorney uh, really does uh, probably about three or four different things at, at main, what I would call main tasks. Um, and it depends a little bit on which area of IP you're talking about. But in general, I would say there's prosecution, which is getting your patent, your trademark, your copyright, um, whatever it is, and go, you know, going through the appropriate office in Washington. Um, there are disputes, which is anything from sending a cease and desist letter to a domain name dispute, to going into court to either sue somebody or to get an injunction. Um, or, you know, it can be so far as uh, working with customs in terms of, uh, or, or other law enforcement uh, with respect to dealing with counterfeit products. And then I guess the third, I guess maybe there's three areas. The third main area I would say is uh, transactional, which is um, like handling a license agreement or handling an asset purchase, assisting, it's usually assisting with an asset purchase agreement where one company is buying an asset of the others. Um, intellectual property is usually a pretty big asset uh, in, the, in those purchases, not always, but very frequently. And like, just to kind of really make it clear for everybody listening, what are examples of intellectual property? So that if you are involved in this transaction, what kind of things are you trying to, um, you know, to, to take from one buyer to another or what have you? There's really, I would say, probably four types of intellectual property. Um, copyright, which protects artistic work, uh, books, movies, music, um, sculpture, uh, things like that. Trademark which protects source identifiers. Uh, everybody knows what a trademark is, even if they don't realize it. It's like a Pepsi logo. <laughs> yeah, it's the golden logo. Yeah. <laughs> when, you're dri- when you're driving uh, um, or the, you know, the logo on your shirt, uh, 
Or, but the interesting things with trademarks, and we can come back to this, it's not, it can often be something that's not words or a logo. It, it can be a color, it can be a smell, it can be the configuration of a product. Um, that's where it gets kind of fun. Um, there yeah, are- I'm, I'm gonna interrupt you there again. Like what would be an example of a smell trademark? I never, that I never thought of. Um, there are smell trademarks. Uh, there was a store and I forget who it was, who they had a certain scent when you walked into the store and they were able to get a trademark registration uh, for that. Um, product configurations is a big one. The, the easy example is the uh, Coca-Cola bottle. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh yeah, because that's iconic, yeah. Right, because you see that, you don't even have to see what it says, but you know what's in it and you know where it came from. There are other uh, products like that. Um, we've been able to register uh, some very well, uh, very well known furniture designs as an example, um, or handbag designs as trademarks, because people, they're so iconic, they see them and they know that it comes from a particular source. And that's what a trademark is, uh, intended to do, designate the origin of the, uh, good or service. Um, so I'm going to shift to finishing. Yeah. The, the different types. Uh, that brings us to patents. It's worth noting that there are two kinds of patents. Uh, there's what's called a utility patent, which is, I think, what everybody thinks of when they think of a patent. It's a long, detailed document, usually long, detailed document with drawings and a lot of words describing how something works. And it can be anything from as, uh, as simple as how a doorknob works to something as complex as uh, how a COVID vaccine works or how a computer, uh, computer software works. Um, for that, to practice uh, patents, you need to have a science background. Okay. Um, the, uh, the patent office requires that they have a separate bar exam uh, that you need to pass. And in order to sit for it, you have to have a certain amount of undergraduate science credits. Um, to jump back, the, the other type of patent uh, that there is is something called a, a design patent. Uh, design patent is very simple. It's just a series of pictures and it protects the way something looks. Um, you know, the, the look of a product, it can protect the look of a chair. We've done uh, footwear, we've done handbags, uh, lighting fixtures, um, all sorts of things. They're not, because it's really just a series of pictures, it's not as involved uh, as a utility patent, but they're just as powerful. And then the, the fourth uh, area of IP is, that I would say is uh, trade secrets which there's nothing to really do other than keep it secret. Right. <laughs> um, but it is, it is there and it's worth uh, pointing out because sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, that's the whole 
well, Coke again, you know, as a trade secret to what they're, um, well, so one of the things I know there's an intersection between IP and social media. And I mean, certainly there's easy parts of that, the Twitter bird is, you know, um, a trademark and there's probably intellectual property secrets in the software that each or the platforms mm -hmm. are defining. But what, what, what comes to mind when people ask you about that intersection? Oh, there's all sorts of different things. Um, you know, one thing that is, is not necessarily directly social media related, but one thing that, that I was just working on this morning is I had a client uh, come to me, they're looking at uh, Google and they're seeing ads from third parties and the ads have the client's trademark in it. And these third parties don't sell the client's product. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, so, so somebody is on Google and they look at an ad and let's say the ad sells Tory Burch pocketbooks, but the company that's paid for the actual four corner ad doesn't sell Tory Burch. So it's kind of like bait, right? Yep. Okay. And so then you sue the people. It, you know, it's, it's like everything else. It depends on how, it depends on how upset the client is. Um, and it depends on how willing they are to spend, um, to be perfectly frank. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 and that, dear students, is the lesson learned, is that it all comes down to, when you're a practicing attorney, what the client's willing to spend. Anyway, yes. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's one of the, the things that I would say they don't really teach you in law school, but that's very important. Um, you know, there, there are different avenues uh, for addressing that. You you could, we could sue, we could send letters. Google has a, a mechanism for addressing this. Um, so I'm still waiting to hear from my client what they want to do with this. But, you know, that's one thing that uh, just dealing with today, things that are specific to social media, um, probably the big one that we see a lot of excuse me, is photographs. Because photographs get widely shared yeah. on social media. It's very easy to, to tag something, share it on Twitter, share it on Snapchat, LinkedIn, you know, wh whatever it is, Instagram. Um, but photographers have been very aggressive about suing people for copyright infringement if they're posting... Uh, photographs without authorization. Um, and they have gone after, and there have been a number of cases, photographers have gone after uh, well-known celebrities. And of course, I'm drawing a blank as to, to who at the moment. Um, but they're having cases where they've gone after the celebrities because the celebrities posted the picture they took of them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, who is it? Uh uh, it's the model and she just had, she wrote, she actually wrote something about it. Um, her last name starts with an R and I'm totally blanking on it. Um, she is what she's well known. If I could think of the name, people would recognize it. Um, but in any event, it happens and it, you know, it's not just happening once it happens. Uh, it happens a lot. Um, well, that, you know, and that, that I, I guess to put this in context, the whole idea is that the photographer is making 
money by selling their pictures. And if somebody misappropriates it or takes it and uses it for their own use, not only does the, you know, is it a, it's, it's stealing and you can be angry, but the reality is that the photographer loses his ability to make money. And so there's an interest in that, in the photographer, right? There, there is, um, but when it's the photographer who initially posts it online and then somebody retweets it, that becomes a little bit harder to, uh, to justify the lawsuit. I mean, certainly if somebody is using a, a photograph uh, without permission uh, and doing something that you shouldn't have been, that's one thing. But if you're retweeting what somebody else has already put out, there, there's, you know, that doesn't uh, absolve you of liability. But, you know, if you're retweeting what the photographer put out, it gets hard to swallow. So, gets- all right, so let me ask you a hypothetical. Sure. I'm a photographer, I'm a famous photographer. I take a picture of Kim Kardashian and I uh-huh. put it out there and it gets 12 likes and mm-hmm. Kim Kardashian retweets it and she gets 7 million likes, right? And I can sue Kim Kardashian, but it seems to me you're telling me it's not really worth my while because I first put it out and I'm putting it in the public domain. So I guess the question is what happens when Taylor Swift writes a song? And some other famous, Kim Kardashian loves that song so much that she retweets the song. Are you saying now that Taylor Swift loses her interest or could lose her interest in, you know, that the ability to control that music and who's listening and who's buying it because she put it out in the public domain? No. Um, What happens is with with the photographs, it depends on the platform. But there are some platforms that say if you post it on here and if you look at their terms of service, which nobody but the lawyers ever, ever read, um, it says you're granting a license. And nobody nobody reads that. Instagram came out and at one point and said, if you post something on Instagram, you are not granting others a license to use it. Okay. They came out at one point and said that, but... If you go to something like YouTube, I'm not so sure that they're uh, that they have that uh, position. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so to go back to your question uh, about Taylor Swift, um, you know, part of it is a question of how people look at it because she could sue, right? But there's a question of does it make sense, you know? Is it better to have the publicity of the song being tweeted around out there? Uh, you know, there's va- there is value to that. Um, if you sue, what exactly are you going to get as a recovery? Is it worth it? Copyright has some built-in incentives to that because if you have a copyright registration, you can get uh, attorney's fees. If, if everything's timely filed, you can get a, a statutory damages. Um, but is it really worth going through a lawsuit, which, you know, is time and money and effort uh, to recover that at the end of the day? Um, so it's not so much that uh, 
you know, she would lose control. It's a question of, you know, like everything else, balance. You know, is it worth it? Is this worthwhile to pursue? Look, the music industry very famously uh, about, I guess it's 20 years ago at this point, went after Napster, yeah, and, Napster yeah. and the file sharing services. And there's, you know, they're still going after uh, very different forms that now they're looking at BitTorrent. Um, but they went after people who were uploading and sharing music and they went after the individuals. And there were a number of lawsuits that were filed um, because they thought it was worthwhile to make examples out of people to teach people not to do it. It just I'm seems, I mean, I just, right or, you know, not, just not saying they were right or wrong, but that's what happened. I, I know. It just, it seems like such a, <laughs> my legal word bummer, but it just does seem like it, it's so unfortunate because, I mean, I think about, and, and um, my listeners may or may not know this, but there's this kind of iconic World War II photograph of a sailor kissing. Sure. Um, I think she was a nurse. I don't remember. I and, think and so the idea is this picture appeared in the New York Times. And then anytime someone reproduced it, I believe that the photographer got a royalty, right? Right. But Probably. now, but, but if that picture had shown up on Twitter, say what you're saying to me is that anyone time someone retweets it, the photographer doesn't get a royalty. Correct. And it, it, it's, it's not that he can't, it sounds like it's that it's not worth it. Is that an accurate statement or is it that um, he can't? To, to some extent, I mean, you know, if you look at who the lawsuits are against, the lawsuits are, uh, that the photographers bring are generally against um, big publishing companies, new, uh, news, and, news companies, or celebrities. Right. Now, there is... Um, there was legislation that the president signed at the very end of December, the, the, this very big uh, COVID relief bill. It had all sorts of things in it that had absolutely nothing to do with COVID. Right. And one of the things that it had in there was legislation that had been kicking around Congress for a while to create what has really been called a copyright small claims court. And that is, is going to happen. Um, it should be in place by the end of 2021. Um, the Copyright Office has to develop some regulations. There are limits as to the amounts that can be recovered. Um, it's not mandatory. So if, if you're the photographer, for example, and you find somebody who's copying, you can notify them and bring the proceeding in that forum. But if they don't, if the other side doesn't want to participate, it's done. Oh, hmm. but then, then you, then you can just go to court. Well, that's, that's true. It's regular small claims court too, isn't it? Right. I, I think I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not schooled in small claims court either. Right. So. Exactly. But, but <laughs> so to some extent they're trying to address that, the, the point that you were making. And is the creation of a small claims court good for practicing attorneys, bad for practicing attorneys, or it doesn't really matter? Um, I think at this point, it's hard to say. The idea is that you can do this without an attorney. Um, that, that's certainly the idea because part of the cost is, is an attorney. Right. Um, on the other hand, 
I think it's going to be a little bit difficult to do it without some attorney input. Um, you know, it seems to me that if you're taking a case to this, uh, I think it's called the Copyright Claims Board is the actual name, that if you're taking a case there, you're going to want somebody to have looked at it before you go and say, okay, you've got everything that you need. I think this, you know, I think you've got a shot here. This isn't like an unreasonable case. Um, you know, this is what you have to show in order to, to win. Even if the, the attorney is not there at the proceeding, you would think that at least some people would want it. Some people will say, I, you know, I know enough. I don't need anybody to, to do it. But you got to think that uh, somebody's going to want it. It's going to have its own procedures. So, you, you know, somebody's going to have to know those procedures and how, and how it works. But, you know, one of the things they're talking about is it's going to be remote, as I understand it. Oh, really? Who, who wanted it? Who, who, who was the driving force? Was it Congress? Was it the president? Was it lawyers? The American Bar Association? Do you know who kind of pushed for this? I, it was not, it was definitely not the president. I don't think it was Congress. Um, I think it was maybe, I, I'd have to go back and double check to, to see. I do know, it, I had heard about this several years ago. Um, so I know it's been kicking around for a while. Um, it may have been, and I'm not 100% on this, it may have been some of the intellectual property law groups uh, that were pushing for this because, you know, it was getting to a point, you know, and it's always a consideration, how much is it going to cost to get, you know, to get into court and to bring a suit to vindicate your rights? And even if you get attorney's fees, you're not getting those, you're not getting paid on that either until the case settles or until there's a judgment. And if there's a judgment, well, that's great, but can the defendant pay it? Can right. the other side, can the other side? Right. So you spend all that money and. Right. It's, you, you still may not get any, you may have a piece of paper that says you're entitled to it, but that's, uh, that's that. But, you know, on, on the flip side, uh, you know, copyright because of those incentives, uh, it's somewhat ripe for abuse. Um, you know, and you see that, um, there are a lot of cases brought by, uh, porn companies, frankly, who sue. Oh, porn. I thought you said corn, porn. porn. <laughs> yes. yeah, no, 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 porn. <laughs> I was saying, what does corn have to do with this? Yeah. <laughs> um, they will sue IP addresses because that's the information that they get. And they, you know, they, there's a way to proceed uh, to sue the IP address. And then the ISP has to disclose uh, who the subscriber is once they get a, a subpoena. And they have a whole, there's a whole business model because there's one or two companies that are filing tons and tons of these cases. And something like 99 or, or more percent of them settle in part because of, you know, it's a copyright case and they could get damages, uh, statutory damages and attorney's fees, et cetera, et cetera. 
but with those cases, there's an added uh, stigma. Nobody wants to have their name associated with one of those cases. Oh, you mean attorneys don't want to have their name associated or, no. or oh, the clients? The, the, I mean, the, 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 the parties. Yeah. 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 That, um, that, I, can, I, I understand that. I mean. And, yeah. It's, I mean, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable, but, you know, there's kind of this, a little bit of attention there and it's a little bit ripe for abuse because I was just reading a case the other day and, you know, the, the music industry ran into this problem too, but one of these companies sued an IP address. They got the subscriber's name, but they couldn't prove that subscriber was the one who downloaded and the subscriber came out and he said, look, he's like, I'm in, I think it was a, either a condominium or an apartment building. My Wi-Fi has been open. I know other people have used it, you know, prove to me that I'm the one who downloaded it and they couldn't. And the court really pushed them to do it. And in fact, they, uh, they couldn't come forward with any evidence. The court wound up sanctioning them. Their attorney yeah. withdrew. They, they were saying, yeah, it was. Um, do you think the guy was telling the truth or do you think that was a really great defense? Or do you I not want to answer? The, I only read the court's decision <laughs> and the way the court portrayed it, uh -huh. it sounded like he was telling the truth. Is it possible that he wasn't? Sure. I, I think it's, you know, judges, I, I think, are pretty good at sniffing out when somebody is uh, not being forthright with them. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, they would have here. And I, I think they, if I recall correctly, th he also had some evidence to, to back it up. Okay. So it wasn't just him right. saying, but there was also this absence of evidence from the plaintiff. Um, so there are abuses that go on. It, you know, it's, I mean, you know, it happens with, with anything. It's not a perfect system. Um, yeah, and you know, you did, and I just, I guess, I want to just touch on one other thing because you bring this up. The problem, so that we have Section two hundred and thirty of the Communication Decency Act, and that basically says that internet service providers like a Facebook, like Yahoo, like Twitter, are immune. And so, if an anonymous person defames somebody on mm -hmm. Twitter, then the victim, so to speak, we'll call it the plaintiff has no one to go after because they can't find the anonymous person and they aren't, can't sue um, the ISP because they're barred by law, right? And so it sounds to me similar to what you're saying with this porn thing too, is that you know one of the big problems, I guess, is finding a defendant. Right, although you would think, and I don't get too much into, into Section 230, but you would think that if you went to the ISP, um, they'd be able to tell you who posted, you know, they must, unless it's, excuse me, unless it's totally anonymous and the person doesn't have an account. Well, that's what I'm thinking about. Like you make up a fake account or something. Yeah. But I mean, usually there's something. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are, if you dig deep enough and you spend the time and the effort, usually you can find people it's mm -hmm. you know not always but you know it becomes a it can it can be, become a burden because you don't always want to spend the time or the effort or the money 
right to, you know to to track to track this down right um but it, it's you know it's a balance on the the other hand uh if you were able to sue any of the these isps uh you could potentially put them out of business. Exactly. I, I the benefit of not of giving them immunity so outweighs the burden. It's, it's, where's the incentive to stay in business if you're going to be you have to fact check every single word of every single thing? Right. Right. And it's you know it's a it's a balance uh, when it comes to copyright because you have the um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is intended to balance those two interests. So there's this notice and takedown provision that if somebody, you know, if somebody on Amazon is selling something that infringes your copyright, there's a mechanism. You go to Amazon and you tell them and maybe they take it down and maybe they don't. Um, but as long as Amazon does that, you can't sue them. Right. But the music industry has been successful in going after ISPs because the music industry is very aggressive and they will send literally millions and millions and millions of takedown notices. And the ISPs get them, but they're not as, uh, the music industry's position is that they're not uh, doing exactly what they should because they'll identify repeat infringers and the ISPs won't do anything. Right. Um, so, but it's a balance and there, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying that the MCA is out of whack and needs to be adjusted because it's too burdensome to send all these takedown notices. You know, what's a small, you know, what's a small entity to do? You can't hire somebody who's monitoring everything. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you um, about the balance of power. Um, I, I, you kind of addressed it, but, you know, I think that that balance of power. Um, this is so interesting. I do have one other question. If students are planning to graduate or practice IP, what advice would you give them? Um, probably the biggest piece of advice I would give, which is not a piece of advice that I got, but take patent law. Okay, take patent law. Yeah. Take patent law because most people who come out who want to practice IP have taken copyright, have taken trademark. Unless they're intent on being a patent attorney, they tend to stay away from patent law. Hmm. And there are a lot more people who can do trademark and copyright than can do patent. So if you have any ability to do patent, even if you don't have a science background. Okay. It's worth you it. You take the patent bar. Uh, you need the science background to sit for the patent bar. Oh, but you should take patent. You can still. I'm sorry, I didn't but mean to interrupt. Take, no, no, that's okay. Take take patent law in order to understand it, because if you can talk about a patent application and the specification and the claim and the drawings and what's supposed to happen, even if you can't actually sign things before the patent office, if you can do that work, at least to me, that makes you more valuable than somebody who can just do trademark and copyright. Um, it's harder to find people who can do 
patent work. Um, obviously, if you have the science background, then it's much, much uh, more to your benefit. Um, that's probably the one big thing uh, that, I, that I would say. That's great advice. And last question, what do you wish you had done differently in law school? <laughs> um, probably that I had taken patent law. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and I'll take, I'll take it a step further. Had I known where I was going to wind up, I probably would have taken more science classes, uh, as an undergrad. Interesting. Um, cause I did not know. And I took the bare minimum, uh, which is not enough to sit for the, uh, patent bar. And once I got out of law school, I decided I was done taking classes. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. I know. I remember walking down the um, aisle for graduation and thinking, shoot, I got to take one more class, that bar class. This has been really interesting, really helpful, and certainly valuable, particularly for students who are even thinking about going into IP. So, um, and I could talk about this stuff all the day, but I will not keep oh, you any longer. So, thank you so much for joining me. Really this is fun stuff. Thank you again for having me. This has been a blast. Oh, really, me too. Thank you. And that's my discussion with Mark Mistel. I hope you enjoyed it. As a reminder, if you have any professors with whom you'd like us to speak or topics you'd like us to talk to or even lawyers or issues you'd like us to address, you can email us at lawdefact@gmail.com. Welcome back to the new school year. I hope everyone is healthy and I hope we're all able to get back on campus soon.